describes acts of extreme violence in graphic detail and may include discussions about demonology and the occult, topics that caused widespread panic during the 1980s. This content may not be suitable for children under the age of 50. Viewer and listener discretion is advised. I'm James. I'm Dan. Hey, Dan. How are you today? Good. I like you're doing, you're working on your radio voice, it sounds like. Why, yes, I am. I'm trying to. <laughs> it sounds good. It's about time. So, Dan, tell us uh, where we're from today. Well, well, James, as you know, we're out of the abyss. People are gathering again. So we're very fortunate to be on location at Glen Ellen, Illinois, at the CWA Spring Game Fest. James, do you know what CWA stands for? You know, Something I love Something Warring Asso- War Gaming Association. That's my guess. Oh, you're come on. You're so close. Don't C- stop now. CW War Gaming. And, and where where are we from? What's the name of the place again? <laughs> Glen Ellen, Illinois. Okay, the Chicago War Gaming Association. Thank you. That's look at that. Oh. I was waiting for you to do the ding, ding, ding. Oh, you took a well, sip. I thought your hand was going oh, to the... Oh, yeah. I, you know what the problem is? I have a new uh, soundboard. I can't find the ding, ding, ding. Where is it? Oh, here it is. <laughs> oh, that's cash thing. So... It's the money. Yes. That's right. I don't know. Oh, I don't have ding, ding, ding. Oh, this, oh that's terrible. That's <laughs> no ding, ding, ding. It's like when you show up to class and you realize you've forgotten your notes or something. Oh, boy. Oh. So, well, anyway, we're here in front of our live studio. audience. Oh, give yourselves a hand. There you go. Yes, and so, James, you are absolutely correct. We are at uh, the Chicago War Game Association's uh, Spring Game Fest. James, did you realize this is the first springtime convention to be staged by the Chicago War Gamers Association? I did not know that. That's they've done. They've really been a great host here while we've been here this whole time. So that's super cool. We, we want why do I feel? Why do I feel like Bill Fawcett should be here? He's probably here at the con somewhere, oh, yeah. don't you think? Yeah. Well, absolutely. You know, um, at the College of DuPage, more than 100 events are scheduled, James, including a big AD&D tournament, miniatures, auctions, seminars, and exhibits. I love how things are changing. When it's the Chicago Wargamers Association, I think they're changing, and there is a big ADA tournament. They're talking about role-playing, so that's a sign of the times. Wow. There is, is that kind of ties into what uh, Bill... Uh, Willingham said last time with the wheelchair accessible dungeon, is that the same thing or is that a different thing? You've got, you lost me on that. You mean it's like the t- times are changing, right? So back, that's the equivalent back then is, right. is role. It's not really the same, but similar, yes. Um, I'll see you at the Panzer Blitz tournament later tonight. 
at, at the at the lounge. <laughs> That's right. I heard they may be doing Jeopardy there as well, which is which, yes. is, which you are the champion. So you represent the, the Florida or, chapter. You do realize we could never do Jeopardy again, and you know why, don't you? No, I don't know why. So I will remain. Oh, that's right. That's right. That's right. That bit is done. That's right. Even it's though it's over, no more. <laughs> that's right. No more Jeopardy. We will never see Jeopardy again. Oh, that's true. I didn't even think about that. You're right. You guys created a monster. You'll, you'll... Don't ever play games with me. I'm not a good winner. I'm a I'm a poor loser and a poor winner. Well, Carlos is a poor. I, you know, Carl, Carlos and you have something in common. No wonder why it was so <laughs> angry last time. It was. <laughs> It was a little, it was a little angry. I, uh, well, it did have a little bit of the Moops Moore's feel to it, since his answer did seem to be correct mm-hmm. in some part of the book. So, yeah, but that's oh well. that does it's what the judges go with, and and this is where uh, that the time you spent with our Tim Cass has paid off. So hey, good for you. So I'm not I'm not bitter because I sucked. Okay. I didn't I couldn't get anything right. So. Anyhow, so Dan, we have another little figure in our screen, so why don't you introduce our guest? Yes, it is our pleasure to welcome Stephen Marsh onto the show. So uh, Stephen, of course, uh, was a contributor to some of the early uh, OD&D supplements and some of his monsters, which we'll talk about, of course, made their way into uh, the Monster Manual. And he, of course, also uh, is one of the authors of the expert set for the basic edition uh, of AD and D of, of basic D and D. So, Stephen, welcome to the show. Glad to be on. All right. Uh, there you go. What's really funny is there's there's more than one Stephen Marsh in the game industry. I I saw I saw that yes, and so have you ever been? I know he's been confused, right? To, uh, uh, people thought he was you, right? Yeah. Uh, have you had? Has anyone ever thought he? I'm struggling here that that you were him. Yes. So who uh, who who is the other Stephen Marsh? He works for Steve Jack. He worked for Steve Jackson Games, and uh, we've been on good terms ever since he gave it. A convention address where he said, "I'm a Steve Marsh, but I'm not the real Steve Marsh," and then told said, "I was the real Steve Marsh." <laughs> and, and 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 of course not. And so, are you talking about the Steve Jackson in England or the Steve Jackson in the U.S.? The one in Austin. Yes. Okay, because that's it's confusing people. too, right? Yeah, the one the Michael Moorcock is from England is now in Austin too. So, <laughs> okay. Um, well, I'm. Uh, oh wait, wait. Which Steve Marsh are you, James? I think there's a mistake's been made. Which Steve Marsh I'm, is it? I'm the one that did the ex, that wrote the expert set. That's right, and was good. involved from early on. So we've got the good. We've got the right person because I've got a lot of notes here, and I wanted to make sure that we didn't yeah. have perfect. All right, so okay, let's. Can we take you back to you? Know, and you told this story before. Uh, for people who haven't heard interviews of you, I encourage them to go listen. I know you've been on Roll for Initiative. You're on Save or Die podcast. Great <laughs> interviews there. So you're basically saying this one's going to be horrible. You should it, whatever doesn't come out of this interview you should go listen to other ones. Okay, thanks. Exactly. Dan. We try. It. Yes. Yes. Exactly. So um, it is kind of depressing to, to to listen to those interviews and see all the questions that I was prepared to ask have already been asked, but we're going to do it anyway. So you, of course, you, you told the story how you discovered OD&D when Sandy Peterson, right, who goes on to write the Call of Cthulhu role-playing game, you you see Sandy Peterson with OD&D. Maybe you could tell us that story. Sure. I was at BYU, and I was in an honors religion class. 
And I sat down toward the back, and next to me was Brian Stout, who had Men and Monsters, or Monsters and Treasure. He had Monsters and Treasure, and next to him was Sandy Peterson. And I looked over, and I asked if I could borrow the book. And I didn't know either of them at the time. And they said, sure. And so I took Monsters and Treasure home, read it, and brought it back the next class. And and you ended up, you played in in a game with him, right? Yes. Sandy was our, our game master, and uh, we had a relatively high fatality rate. And basically, everyone except for my character died and stayed dead. Uh, my character got raised from the dead, and every time he got raised from the dead, you get stuck with some terrible geas, go do something that was going to get you killed. And I managed to eventually survive all that. Uh, what what kind of... What kind of character did you play? Do you remember your first character? I played a magic user called Elacasus, who I sometimes use as an online screen name even today. Is that the, now, one of your characters made it into, and I'm kind of jumping out of order here, but the Dungeon Master's Law, and I, James, I know you've got a copy of the Dungeon Master's Law, because you let me borrow this one. You've got a character. Ilias and Morningstar. Okay. And is that and so that's someone different than the that's character? That's someone different. Okay. That was a phoenix. Got it. Got it. So you so you're hooked. It sounds like. Yeah, it was great. And you started corresponding with Gary Gygax. What yes. what prompted you to start corresponding with him? And do you remember what the first letter was that you wrote to him? What what you were asking? I'm not sure what the first letter was, but I just. Back in the day, everybody wrote letters, and it never occurred to me not to. And he wrote me back because at the time, D&D was very small. You'll read Gary's writings about me. He'll say we made contact in 73. Greg Stafford says the same thing. I met, I got in contact with Gary in 1974. Yeah, because uh, 70, OD&D was first published. Wasn't I think it was 74. It was written in 73, but I think it didn't come out till 74, I yes. think. Right? Okay. A lot of people in the industry tend to backdate me for reasons. I'm not sure why, but Gary would always tell people I was involved from 1973 on. Okay. And and it sounds like he said you don't remember exactly what you would have been asking. I was just curious if you remembered like you were asking about some rule or you know what, what would have prompted you to write him. I, I don't remember. We just I started writing and then I started writing about alignment. I said, you know, we got to, you got to add good and evil. Oh so, you, oh, so you had done that. How early did you do that? Cause that's another thing that you had suggested it in, which, and I'd like to talk about alignment because sure. I'm a huge fan of alignment. Um, I can't, I don't know James's opinion. I think he likes it as oh, well. Goodness. Yeah. It's, it's yeah, one of the we, few, not some of the inventions of D and D that make it D and D. If you, if you don't have a line, play anything, play other games. Now, the strategic review, the, the newsletter they had before they had the dragon, I actually, the issue on alignment, they put me down as a contributing editor. Of course, I didn't edit anything in the magazine. I just contributed. Uh, and you'll find in the credits, Barry would have this, this big pile of stuff, this big basket of things. And he'd, give, he'd, you know, he'd make it available to Tim Cask and others to use. And then he'd tell them who to put in the credits without explaining what came from who. And so poor Tim never knew who did what. 
because by the time he got the, the, the basket of stuff, uh, that had the, the stuff in it versus the letters, if that, if that makes any sense. Oh, yeah, it, it does. And and so I didn't know. I mean, I've, it's been a long time since I've looked at any of the strategic reviews. So there there was, I guess, an article in strategic review on alignment. And, it, yeah. and, and that would have been prompted by some of the correspondence that you had with Gary. Yes. And, so, and, and Gary gave me uh, contributing editor credit for that issue to go with the alignment. Um, so... I, I'll tell you what I like about alignment, and then maybe you can let us know what your view. And I and, and I know that you you obviously wanted to expand it be, between you know beyond just law and chaos. I like alignment because I think it creates some sort of structure. So I have some sort of general guideline as to how I should play this character. I don't want to just play a character as me, uh, and so it creates some sort of funneling. To help guide me. So, what what were your thoughts on why you wanted more alignments? Uh, I like the idea of alignment as part of the basic underlying structure of the world. Gary really liked three hearts and three lions, which is when I I got rid of several thousand books. When my wife said, "You know, you're carrying around a lot around the books, and you can always get them through Amazon now." And but. Three Hearts and Three Lines, I still kept a copy of it, and I also have it on Kindle. Uh, but it had the idea of law being order and chaos being feral. And so lawful things are things in accordance with uh, the order of heaven, so to speak. So Ogre the Dane, he's lawful. Uh, and then you had all the Moorcock stuff. And originally, I'm not sure if you were aware of this, but Elric was supposed to be a Conan-type character. Moorcock thought that the editor had asked him to write Conan, so he wrote Elric Amelnabundang. You know, just a albino sorcerer with a soul-strinking sword. Isn't that what Conan would do? Mm-hmm. Uh, and... It wasn't a spoof. It was actually an honest attempt by Michael Moorcock in his own way to write Conan. And then he found out the editor, the editor got back and said, this is great. This is exactly what I wanted. Not like Conan at all. But originally the chaos gods were hell gods in Moorcock's world. So they were evil. And the lawful deities were the good guys. And he played with alignment later. But you had a lot of people who had been exposed to Moorcock and not that many that were exposed to Anderson. Um, and then you had Moorcox neutral and the whole idea of Tantalorn and the rest. But it makes an interesting structure, but it's like, you know, not all anarchists are evil. Um, and, not, and not all lawfuls are good. <laughs> yes. Not all, not all Nazis are good people. <laughs> well, well, I thank you for suggesting the additions to the alignment structure. I'm a huge fan. Um, I, I love it. Um, so you sent in, then you started sending in monsters to, yes. to Gary, of course, right? Because we know that you end up getting, you're thanked in the Blackmore supplement for OD&D. And uh, so you send in, um, we know the Aquatic Elves. Now, look, I'm going to ask you to pronounce these. I know Dragon Magazine, and, and Dragon Magazine number 93, 
had a Frank Mansur did a list of pronunciations. And I don't know if you've seen that. I don't know if you were consulted on the pronunciations for your monsters or not, but I'm going to let you say, right. So, so uh, what do you, what, I'll just ask you this way. What do you send in? Okay. First I send in Catobobas, which are a monster of a bestiary. And that shows up in the strategic review. Then I send in a whole bunch of underwater stuff. And that ended up in Blackmore. And that includes the Ixit Chittle. Uh, something about me, until I was in law school, I read words as glyphs, not phonetically. Wow. I learned to spell when I was in law school. <laughs> and so I often would skip a syllable. For, Ixit, for example, Ixit Chittle's got five syllables in the writing, but I only pronounce four of them. So you say, I mean, I say you say, it's, it's your monster. So you say it's, it's, it's a chittle. Yes, and that actually shows up in one of the Dragon Magazine articles. This is and what I, I, mm -hmm. and I wrote and asked, how'd you guys know the right pronunciation? He said, well, I was going to use the other one. And one of the old guys said, no, 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 it's six a chittle. That looks right. From Dragon Magazine number, what I think say, said, 93, Frank has it as Ixitsachittal. So I think that's right. But you, okay, let's talk about the, this is the one for, you said, what is it, the cattle? How do you pronounce it? Okay. There's three different possible pronunciations, according to Dragon. Okay. Catablopus. Okay. Catoblepus or catoblepus. Okay. Were, are any of those three what you said? No. No. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's not your monster. Okay. It's it's it's, it's TSR. They 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 they've done the pronunciation. <laughs> it's official. Um. So you do. All right. You send that, and that makes it interesting. Okay. Um. That's a me. That's a evil monster. Oh. oh. That, that's the death ray monster, right? Yes. Um, and that's the way they showed it historically. Wait, say that again? That's how they showed it historically? Oh, they show up in bestiaries that way. Oh, okay. It's a historically-based monster. Okay, tell us about that. Okay, so where where did you get it from exactly? Which what uh, I was reading an old bestiary. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good picture. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I was reading old bestiary, and I thought, you know, that would be kind of a fun monster, so I sent it in. Okay, yeah, because it is – so I don't know how your players felt about this monster. What I like about this – so let's, let, let's read the gaze of the – oh, gosh, i got to say it again. Okay, hang on. The gaze – like. <laughs> I'm picking one of these three. The gaze of the catablopus, <laughs> I know it makes you upset, is equal, <laughs> is equal to a death ray exceeding six inches from the eyes, even into the astral planes. Any creature which meets this gaze, this is what I love, any creature which meets this gaze dies without any chance to save itself. Complete surprise, two on a six-sided, means one of the party encountering the monster has met its gaze. And it will actually chase you. So that's pretty rough. You gave no save. Which, hold on, Dan. Yes. I don't mean to, I know this is important. But we finally got a definition of complete surprise. 
Remember we asked about complete surprise when we t- talked about the Draculus? What was surprise versus complete surprise? Oh. Well, there it is. Complete surprise is a two. means you're, since you have a surprise of one, typically one or two. Two is complete. We, it said two is complete surprise. We said that, but we didn't have a rule for it. Right. So our life is complete now. And I, Thank, <laughs> thanks to Stephen. And I, and I think, right, Stephen, I think that this monster, Gary didn't change this very much. from right, The one you sent in a strategic review, I assume, was taken directly from what you sent in. And I don't think this was changed that much from strategic review, right? I don't think so. I think that the, you're basically your equivalent of, of saving was its difficulty in raising his head to gaze at you. Yes, correct, correct. That that is that is uh, correct. So so uh, you sent that in, and then you sent in the. Uh, Shall we talk about uh, so aquatic elves and all these yeah. monsters? These were these ones that were you were using in a campaign that you were running, and did you send in more? And these were just the ones that were chosen. Uh, they pretty much used everything I sent in. When they were doing Blackmore, they didn't get enough content. And so they they grabbed the whole bundle of underwater stuff I'd sent in and used everything I sent. So was more used from you than simply those monsters? So Because I know there's a whole discussion underwater. I mean, basically, was the, the text of the underwater discussion of underwater adventuring, was that, was that you? Pretty much, you know, the free action rings and the air bubbles and everything else. Okay, so it's a, so it's a lot more because I've often seen where they reference that you know the, you're get credit obviously for the monsters and the underwater material, but it was never clear to me how much of the underwater material came yeah, from you. Yeah, I did some magic items to make underwater adventures easier to use. Were you doing? Is that because you were doing underwater adventures in your campaigns? No, I was just thinking about it, and so I wrote it up. Okay, okay. Um, uh, so it's like the Tobles. I never actually used it on, on characters in my campaign. So maybe I need to toss one in for uh, North Texas RPG Con this year. Yeah. How could you not? <laughs> That's right. It would, what an honor it would be to be killed by a Catoblis's death ray when run by Steve I Marsh. I got killed by Catoblis by Steve himself. So, you know, picture, That's right. It's I, think a bomb. A, I think I'm just going to back up the, uh, the aquatic feral uh, skeleton chickens. Aquatic skill. Okay. Yeah. They have feral chickens all over Hawaii. And I thought, you know, you need aquatic feral chickens. And then why not make them in why not have giant aquatic feral chickens? And then why not make them into skeletons? So kobolds can ride them. It writes itself. Yeah. Hold on, right sitting writing this down. Hold on. Aquatic ch- giant skeletal chickens. You heard it here giant. first. Yeah. That's right. Wait. So if you if you were not running an underwater camp because the hang on I've got my I've I've done my research, Sawagin, Hog Sawagin, Sawagin. Well, no, I'm sorry, that's incorrect. It is uh, Hawagin. Um, (laughs) Sorry, I remember I I read shapes. Uh, It's a Spanish word. A bunch of the names of those monsters came from an old missionary pamphlet called Christ in the Americas, which later got uh, withdrawn because they discovered, you know the story of Cortez, right? He shows up. Sure. He thinks he's been mistaken for a god. In reality, they're mocking him. He doesn't know that. And they, they bring him to Mexico City. He thinks to honor him, and reality is to eat him. And he manages to escape the city 
due to a smallpox outbreak. And then he allies with all the people the Aztecs are eating and uh, leads basically a revolution of sorts and conquers Mexico City. But all the stories, he really believed, he believed, and a lot of the early Spanish Spaniards believed, that he had been mistaken for a god. And they didn't catch on that he was being mocked. And it wasn't until like the 90s they got, people got into this, the core sources beyond the early Spanish sources. And they went, wait a moment. Kicks, you know, Quetzalcoatl and the rest, they don't match up. And they got other stuff. And they went, my gosh, he didn't know what he was talking about. Okay. I, this anyway, is, so I, I, I used a bunch of names from that pamphlet. Well, th this actually reminds me of something else that you've talked about. So not realizing you're perhaps being mocked. So James and I may have fallen for this. So we review Dragon Mag. It's, it's often we review Dragon magazines from forty years ago, and recently we read an article where Gary was discussing how female dwarves do in fact have beards. And and James, you're going to shake your head. You may just want to leave the podcast now. James and I were like, "Aha! It's true." Gary said it. It is true. And only when I was doing research. On, on you and listening to your, your former interviews. Well, why don't you tell the story? So why were James and I apparently, even now, 40 years later, we, we were duped? Okay. We are the Cortez of the Cortezes of D&D. Gary was not as pleased as he could be with the amount of reverence he was getting. He thought, people should feel more free to ignore me. They're taking me too seriously. So he wrote this article that he thought would, would do it. He said, surely nobody will take this seriously. And then, much to his surprise, people did take it seriously. And next thing you know, there's all these people, yep, female, female dwarves have beards. And he's like, and that was that. Oh, he yeah, was quite surprised. At that point, he gave up. Yeah, well, he, yeah, he, he needs to understand. He needs to do plain speak with people like us. Because, you know, it's, 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 he was being too... Uh, uh, he wasn't being clear enough for people. Like we need to be hit over the head, basically. Uh, so he just wanted people to feel free to ignore him. Right. Well, we took him seriously, so I'm glad we got that cleared up. I was surprised to learn that you didn't have a big underwater campaign because the Swagen um, are. That's a huge entry. I mean, it's a wonderful. Two syllables. Two syllables. Swagen. 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 Yeah. Right. Sagwin. It's closer. Sagwin. There's a diphthongal glide. Oh, God. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, I'm good. No, that's great. No. I love it because he's the one who tip. you know, I, you know, I have no, I don't well, know any of this grammar. Well, we were so just complaining great. a little bit because, you know, because Frank in his pronunciation says it can be drow or drow. We feel like he was just kind of like saying it could be anything you want pretty much and wasn't solving things, right. but that's a different issue. That's why we appreciate we're getting the record here straight. And, and later, we're going to have to pay. If, if we say these monsters wrong in the future, our, our listeners are going to have to, like, let us know and we'll send them a gift. Yeah. So we, we're going to have to we're going to we're gonna put this on loop yeah. uh, later. J James says gibbering mouther. OK, so the song and our it's a wonderful entry. So it is it's it reminds me almost sort of like an entry for like they're almost like the drow of the deep. I really enjoyed learning about them. I never really spent a lot of time looking at them and the amount of background here. Um, and then, of course, the background was included in 
the um, uh, in Blackmore. So the one that makes it a monster manual is not all that much different than the one you sent in. So it surprised me that you didn't have a campaign because you obviously gave a lot of thought to these creatures. Well, I'm playing in Sandy's campaign, and I'm thinking. And I kind of prefer to think and watch and play rather than um, run stuff. It's like a lot of video games, I like to watch someone else play them. Uh, but I don't have... It's right up your alley. You can just watch people play video games all day. That's what Twitch is, basically. That's what uh, people do. Were you a quiet player? So when you were at the game, you know, some players are very quiet. They just sort of, they just do that. They sit and they kind of watch, or were you an active player? Well, we were often playing with just one or two characters at a time, one or two players at a time. So it was social. Uh, the campaign I played in later in law school, you know, would have maybe as many as three people at a time, plus the DM, you know. I played often in very small campaigns. Uh, and so, and we were social. So it's, it's not like my daughter's, my daughter ran a campaign, she had 12 kids. Yeah, that's... And they that's, all had, they were all on the autism spectrum. And that was an impressive bit of active management. You had the parents sitting in the background, a therapist in attendance, and this campaign running. When was, when was that, Stephen? That was, I finished up about three years ago when she started uh, college. Okay. Because, you know, I'm sure you've heard that one of the things, you know, we went from satanic panic in the 80s to now, People see role-playing games as a, a form of therapy for folks, it, whether it trauma and, and because instead yeah, of so criticizing special. the individual, you're criticizing the way their character's acting, and it allows them to role-play and put it at a distance. We had a party for the kids at our house, and my wife got a DJ to show up, and a number of the parents, you know, one of the parents started crying. It's the first time she'd ever seen her kid get social or dance. Oh, mm. awesome. Um, so what we need, so, so it sounds like to me, Stephen's available for parties and DJs. Yes. Uh, if you're, if you're available. Before so. we sold the big house. Yes. We had a couple of weddings in the backyard and I uh, downsized. Yes. Yeah. And that house was expensive to maintain. It's like, I'm looking at retirement. It's like, uh, not that excited about mowing the lawn. Yeah, well, I've got I've got like a lot of cats, so I need to keep the larger house. Um, what see? So the Sagan is um, there's a dark side to them, to be sure. So they yeah, right because they are Aztec sharks. Okay, got it. Ooh, and they are descended from alligator worshiping alligator men. Got it. Did you? Was there anything that you were not? So there were some changes in the monster manual from the version you sent in that that makes its way to Blackmore. Like I noticed that there was rumors that maybe the Drow had created them. I was just wondering if there was anything about some of the changes that you were not necessarily thrilled. And I understand, you know, Gary's going to have license to do that. And and let me mention that it seems clear that Gary was quite 
enamored with the material that you were sending in. I mean, in reading the way Gary talks about your material, I mean, he he, he lavishes praise on you. He obviously absolutely loved the saw again because he basically reprints the entire entry yeah. that you sent in almost verbatim it looks like it doesn't change much in the monster manual 2 at all so he obviously was was quite taken by it um but was there anything in there that you kind of like well i don't know i don't really i wasn't really thrilled with that change or does it just not not matter that much not that i'm aware of okay okay <laughs> okay well i was just curious because it said something about the dry Claiming that the drow spawned the Sagan. So there's some discussion in there that they, they worship devils, that the reason they had nine uh, areas was because they uh, mirrors the plains of hell. And so those are just sort of some of the little changes that I noticed being uh, different. And Sagan spawned themselves. Okay. Uh, but, you know, to get to that, you got to get to the Harar, which are these alligator men. And worshiping an alligator god who decided to make themselves aquatic and transition to uh, the shark. And what, and what about, so the, uh, it's a chittle. Yeah. It, it's very interesting. And I first encountered the it's a chittle in, I believe it's in Ghost Tower of Inverness. I think Alan Hammock put it in there uh, with a, with great artwork, I believe, by Earl Otis. So very interesting because you basically have, it looks like, you know, underwater clerics in the form of a ray is the way mm -hmm. I would. Very interesting. So can you tell us a little bit about how you came up with the Ixochitl? Okay. Uh, there's a Fafford and Gray Mauser story that's mildly uh, Thula Mythos where there's a sea wreck and the, the people going after the, the treasure and then they get ambushed by these rays and eat them all. And of course, Fafford, the Great Mouser, escape. And that's kind of where the Ixochitl come from. And then we were working on a character class, which never made it, probably for good cause, called the Philosopher. Uh, and Philosophers only got an extra hit point level. They uh, had, you know, they were based on the alternate combat system, which was, and they also had spell points, but very parsimonious. They had one spell point a level, and they gained a spell points worth of spells a level. So, at first level, they had one spell and one spell point. At second level, they got another, they could have another spell, or if they hadn't gotten the first level spell, they'd get a second level spell. And they had a total of two spell points. At third level, you know, it goes on from there. So they didn't have much in the way of spells, uh, but they had some flexibility. And that never got worked out well. And so that got scratched. So they started off as chaotic clerical philosophers <laughs> because they, the kind of spells they were going to get was clerical spells. And they were going to follow the, uh, the philosopher uh, rule set. Well, that got scrapped, and and then every so often, I figured, you know, rather than have them the way Lieber did, which is basically all vampire, vampire types, just have an occasional vampire mixed in with the clerical types. And that gives them a lot of punch for a low-hit-dice creature. 
Okay. Um, uh, very interesting. And uh, I have a question on aquatic elves. Are they, so you say they're like mermen, but they're humanoid. So do they have, so do aquatic elves have, do they have legs or do they not have legs? They had legs originally. Okay. Mermen don't have legs. Mermen have fishtails. Right. That's what I was wondering. I didn't, yeah. Okay. Aquatic elves just have, you know, fins along their legs. Right. Okay. Okay. Um, you sent in, so you're corresponding uh, with Gary, and it's you're going to end up at TSR, right? The summer of 1980. So, yeah. so how did how did how did that happen? Because you you were in law school, of course, at that point, right? Yeah, and Gary wanted me to to work for TSR when I got out of law school as a game designer, and I was good with that, and had me come out for the summer to make sure I was a fit. And, you know, I saw, I saw him a couple, three times, got to see his house, meet his wife. We went out to dinner at a local bar and had hamburgers. And quite frankly, I'm very fond of bar food, even though I don't drink. Uh, and with the backpacking I'm doing, I am even fonder of it. <laughs> uh, I've eaten, you know, hamburgers and bars all over the all over the. East Coast these days. Um, and I got dumped off in the design department and I got handed things that nobody else was doing. And so that's how I ended up writing the expert set. It's like, and I got given the, the bucket of stuff. There you go. This is also, uh, I had a lot of crap in it. And I, I remember reading something going, my gosh, do I have to use this? I was just appalled. And they said, no, 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 no. It's just available if you want to. And so I, I skipped it, and I just sat down and wrote it. Um, I did want to have vampires get knocked down. If you cut a vampire's head off, it does so many hit points of damage. And you, if you actually kill the vampire permanently, when you reduce his hit points all the way down. So you can stake it, you can cut its head off, stuff the mouth of garlic, bury it at crossroads. Each of these things does varying degrees of total hit points subtraction. So you can have bigger and badder vampires that take more work to take down. And like that's nah, too complicated. And I wanted the woolly rhinos to be intelligent. So I love the idea of woolly rhino cavalry. You know, having these, these critters out on the plains that were intelligent and, you know. And uh, Errol Otis did an illustration of woolly rhino sitting by the fire in an overstuffed chair with a pipe. <laughs> And they're like, nah, we don't want intelligent woolly rhinos. I should have swiped the illustration. I didn't. And so they, they made them so they weren't intelligent. So so did, did Errol Otis do the illustration because he didn't like that idea and he's kind of mocking it? Or did the... Did the oh, okay. But, but it sounds like the illustration... So the illustration didn't help, though. No, the illustration convinced everybody that it was a bad idea. <laughs> okay, so that's oh my moment. I don't want you know. I don't want these guys sitting in an English pub. I want them out on the plains, but intelligent enough you get actual cavalry, you know, formations and procedures. Imagine really heavy heavy cavalry. You know. And, and and you had in before, and I kind of jumped over something when I asked you about going to work at TSR. So the Mystic class, you had sent in when you were corresponding with Gary uh, in the seventies, yeah. right? You had proposed a Mystic class, which 
does not get used, but um, the belief is that it is what becomes psionics, right? And what I did is I, I did a, I've been taking a philosophy, an Eastern philosophy class. I thought, you know, it'd be fun to have gurus and sock gurus and, you know, and so I had level names and they had the eight major powers and then the miscellaneous ones and chakras and, and, you know, so I built up an entire class and sent it in and it ended up in the bundle, the bucket of stuff. And it, they took out all the powers and made them sounding powers. Somebody else has been working on something called the divine, which had uh, sonic attack and defense modes. And they couldn't make a complete class out of it. And so they just took that and they took uh, the sonic powers and they had some sonic monsters they'd worked out. And so the powers of the monsters kind of fit in the ecology better. Yeah, the, I think the, like the mind flare had, had been around, right, for a bit, I think. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and, and uh, if I understand it correctly, Tim Kask, like, Tim Kask liked the idea of psionic. Like, Gary wasn't thrilled with it, but Tim Kask really liked it. And so Tim Kask kind of takes your mystic and turns it into psionics. Um, and, 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 and you'd have to ask Tim about that. I talked with Tim about it. He said he had this bucket of stuff, and so he used it. He had so many pages. And we know in in in, in the player's handbook, I can't, I don't know about. <laughs> yeah. Um, and and there's a reference to in psionics in the in the player's handbook. It says that periodically, it, you dwarves and halflings can have psionics. And my understanding is that you might be responsible for the fact that dwarves could possibly have psionics. Darn right. And elves can't. And elves can't. Right. That's because I was five foot two at the time. <laughs> and uh, so you, you, you're not elf-like. No. <laughs> uh, much to my surprise in my by the time I turned 20, I'd grown to five foot five. When I started college, I was still five two. Well, you could have gone back and changed it, I guess, since you well, were elf like. Tall enough to be an elf, so. <laughs> so, and you also, before you show up for that summer 1980, you had been corresponding with Gary about um, elemental planes, right? Because I know yeah. that in, because in March 1980, and this was supposed to be a big project, right? In March 1980. Gary writes in the Sorcerer's Scroll, he says, stalwart Steve Marsh uh, also sent me uh, reams of absolutely superb conceptual material for the elemental planes. And in a moment of conceptual weakness, I proposed a collaboration, melding his and my ideas into whole campaign series approved for use with AD&D, exclamation point. So uh, we know, of course, this is not going to happen. Maybe you can tell us the story about how that almost was. Okay. Uh, there's two different ways to look at elemental plane, elements. Uh, assuming you want to have classic elements, like in classical uh, mythology. One is to have platonic ideals. So you have an you know, ideal plane of fire, ideal plane of water. And the others to have them as nodes, uh, basically nominal, Aristotelian nominalism or Platonic idealism. I said, you know, you can make Platonic ideals and you can structure it all. And that gives you a huge realm. Basically, if you think of a, a box full of paper, reams of paper, 
each of the each of the packages of paper is a group of prime material planes. And then the walls of the box are the four elemental planes, kind of holding reality in together. Uh, and on the edges, you have edge zones. So if you go deep into the earth or deep in the mountains, you get the plane of earth, you know, the edge. In the ocean, you get the plane of water. As you get deeper, you actually get into the plane around the edge zone. You go up into the sky, you have clouds, eventually from the plane of air, that sort of thing. Um, and it's a lot of fun. Um, and the, the, the deal was, they would use the stuff I'd written, and in return, I would get my own book about the elemental planes. The, um, kind of like Jim Ward got Gods, Damn My Gods and Heroes. And at one point, he was getting almost $50,000 a month in royalties from that. You know? And, um, and this, was, this, this idea continued for a while, right? Because I see in, yeah. in, in May 1983 in Dragon, Gary writes an article about the elemental planes. And yeah. right, he, you, had, you had a tetrahedral structure, if I recall correct, right? Where all the elemental planes are touching. He turns it into a cube, but he gives credit. So it sounds like even as late as May 1983, that idea. So had you been, what had been happening? It sounds like this had been going on for a while because we know yeah. that in 1980, you guys had been, you sent him all these reams of information. Three years later, they're still talking about it. Um, but we know it doesn't happen. It ends up, you know, Jeff Grubb ends up doing the, uh, a book late, years later. Yeah, Jeff got assigned to do it, and he did what he could. Yeah, did you know? and and my understanding is it did. Unfortunately, not really any of your material made it into there, right? Doesn't Lorraine Williams basically the burns it? Problem was they didn't want to pay me. You know, so I never did get paid for Sogwin, for example. That that's the problem. That is, problem. We've, that's been a recurring <laughs> theme paid. with many of our interviews. We've noticed. <laughs> you know, and the the promise was that. They could use my stuff. I've often thought of saying, hey, guys, uh, you need to quit publishing anything that has to do with anything that's mine or derivative of mine. Uh, but, of course, that just causes a mess for fans and everybody else. It messes up the OGL because uh, their rights to use my stuff are, that they've given others the right to use, is dependent on them having the right to do it in the first place. It's like, yeah, it's not worth causing other people the trouble. Oh yeah, um, we we might get in trouble then. Grog, grog talk, the, the intellectual property derivative uh, uh, show. That's right. Well, That's uh, well, we like the open, ga open gaming license. Um, yeah, I, I do too. So it's like, okay, it's not worth screwing anything up, and uh, you know they don't seem to have any indication or desire to pay me. Uh, there's an author's rights group that, you know, and they said they'd make a shot at it, but they're going, I don't, they don't know how to approach it. So I haven't really been that concerned. Um, so, so just to kind of follow through. So you, there's the idea, obviously you're working on it from yeah. as early as 1980. Before that, actually. Oh, actually before that, but it, you know, it's, it's now put out there by Gary that this is going to happen. 
Jeff Grubb's book doesn't come out till 87, 88, 80, something late. Yeah, years. originally, I, and then I was going to do a, a judges. When Gary lost control the one time, I was going to do it with Judges Guild. Um, the original manuscript, Mike Gunderlow was going to help with it, and it got burned up when his, his place got burned up with all of his... Uh, oh, no. He had a huge collection of fanzines. He's this thing called Fact Sheet 5. And those all burned when his place burned, and so did the original document he was working with. I had a photocopy of it with notes, um, though not the latest draft, and that was sold by Paul Stormberg to a bunch of collectors, which fine by me. Uh, I got paid, you know, the collector's uh, value for it. Um, but basically what happened is Gary kept losing control. And there were a lot of people who didn't like Gary, who were uncomfortable with an attorney who was also very loyal to Gary <coughs> being involved. And then they also didn't want to pay me. And that's a combination. Um, what did any, you said that you went out there for the summer as sort of a test run to see if things worked out. That obviously you returned to law school and things, you don't end up working at TSR. Well, I was, after, after that summer, I was told by, they had a job for me. And then I got a letter from one of the Bloom brothers telling me that, it's one of these things that, of course, we wouldn't have hired you. We never, you never really were made an offer, but just as letting you know that we're not going to hire you, it was, you know, one of those things that makes you less charitably inclined towards someone you might otherwise be. When did that letter? When did that letter come? So was that after? So when you left at the summer of nineteen, I'm just curious as to whether you had decided, hey, I'm going to leave law school. This is the route I'm going to take, or, yeah, or was this? I was planning graduation, going to Wisconsin, and then. 82, which is the year I graduated, I get this letter. Okay. So on short, I'm, I'm looking for a job. Oh, so, so it's not, yeah. So your law degree didn't, I got it. So your law degree didn't help. So you're graduating from law school. You're, you're, you're loyal to Gary and they say, okay, this is, this is a terrible idea for us. Yeah. Okay. And you know, <coughs> Gary has varying degrees of control. And he's also, you know, got the uh, Hollywood and the, the cartoons and other stuff going. And basically, they, they really didn't want me around. And Gary kept hoping to salvage a project because if we got this project out, it wouldn't really matter. You know, he would have made good on, on the financial promises he'd made me. And everything would be fine. Uh, but, you know, he wasn't able to. And so I eventually got a job, and then I got a better job. And um, I was talking with uh, John Peterson, who had done a lot of research on a bunch of the old guys. And he said, you know, you're the most successful <laughs> <laughs> um, of, all the, of, all the, of all the old grognards in terms of health and employment, uh, He's like, you know, he'd been prepared to actually give me some money just to be nice to me. And he said, you don't need any money. I said, well, I could always buy extra jewelry for my wife or something. I, mean, I could think of a way to spend it. And he just looked at me. Right. So, 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 so you should thank the Blooms. 
in some ways, yeah, my life, I think, I think my life worked out better because the way you look at, you look at Jim Ward, his life imploded on him several times. And, uh, as far as I can tell, you know, he spent most of the money and I'm not sure what it totaled, you know, you know, the big, the big payment you get for your best month is not in book sales is, uh, often more than 50% of the money you make. And I think they changed the, the rules after that, right? I mean, that's what Jim told us, too, is like they, they, they made it very hard for the authors to make that kind of money going forward, that they were Yeah, they did not want to pay royalties. They felt that, they had, that the value was in the franchise, not in the writing. Right. Uh, but you can see, you know, they've yet to get good, solid, plain reality material of the kind I was working on. And that and that material that that was destroyed. Is that right? I think I heard you say that it had been in Gary's office and Lorraine oh, Williams. There was a bunch of more stuff that was in Gary's office. And I remember Gary told me it all been burned, and I thought he was being uh, figurative. And I later found out that Lorraine had taken all the artwork and dumped it on a, on a trash fire. Much of that got saved by people who pulled it out of the fire, and all the stuff in Gary's office including uh, some original documents of mine, which were not TSR's intellectual property. They were, they were mine. Uh, and so... Uh, Maybe that's what cast the stat. That's right, statute of limitations, get some witnesses. and Because that's different than IP thing. That's uh, destruction of property. I'm sure that... Uh, yeah, and anyway, I found out years later, they'd actually, actually burned it, burned it. Can you no? No. Now, during, the summer eighth. Can you tell us a little bit about the work you did reviewing the Judges Guild products? Okay, yeah. Uh, it was good by Judges Guild stuff, and then we were supposed to review it for compliance. And uh, some of it was fine. It's like we've got these miniatures, and it's like you know, Lauren Schick was like, you "Get rid of the nipples. You know, nipples should not be poking through breastplates." <laughs> And they completely redid them so they look like an adventure might look rather than strippers, you know, cosplaying D and D characters. James, is that in, is that what is that in the uh, was that the like the MLA right the Chicago style guide you know of miniatures? Uh, yeah, no, no nipples. Don't have don't have. James, what does James, James, what does the crowd think about that? Uh, that's well, that's that's bad. They don't want that. They like it. They. they now, Judges Guild was a real surprise to TSR. you got to remember that Gary and the rest were playing D&D once or twice a month. Uh, and they had, you know, a very slow pace. Um, and they expected everybody to just kind of develop their own campaign and adjust the rules. If you've ever read, have you guys ever read Stephen Bruss' Vlad Talto series? No. The Bad and Assassin. It's based on his D&D campaign. Hmm. Now, his Dragarians are lizard people. That, those are his elves. And, you know, it's... It, but, you know, they were expecting that kind of adaptation. And what they weren't ready for was the kids down in Chicago. They were playing D&D five hours a night, 
seven days a week. And they were chewing through content at just an incredible rate. And their stuff shows, some of their stuff shows up in Greyhawk. I had a roommate who was a graduate student in uh, physics who had quit playing D&D. He was in part of that group, so he couldn't do, you know, do both. Because he was, you know, 40 hours a week playing D&D was a minimum. But, you know, they just chewed through, and they, they came up with the, all the cursed armor and cursed weapons because how is it going to kill characters otherwise? Hmm. Which was like, what? Why, why are you focused on killing characters? But in any way... <laughs> <laughs> but people like that chew through material at a rate, you know, just an incredible rate. And Judges Guild filled that niche. People that were just consuming. And TSR is like, why would anybody, you know, use someone else's stuff? Um, and, you know, Blackmore, the reception of the Temple of the Frog wasn't that great. But... Um, so was there, there was there, I assume there's Judges Guild stuff that you reviewed. I mean, did you just reject yeah. some stuff? Because they, they had a license, right? So you guys had yeah. to approve everything, right? Yes. So they wanted, they wanted a group of female Amazons who ran around naked except for braces of protection and rings of protection, who killed all the men they, they met after having children with them. They killed all the boy ch children, and they were to be lawful good and they were to be fairly low level. <laughs> now, if there is a group of fairly low level people carrying high quality magic items, murdering all their neighbors and engaged in piracy, you might suspect that everybody's going to go farm them. Right. You know, and it was like, sorry, they can't be lawful good if they're going around murdering people. Lawful evil, sure. And second, you can't... The guy who had this image of naked women running around. And in order for them to be naked rather than wearing armor and viable in combat, they just need, you know, magic items. But if you've got all of them in magic items and they're low level, think about it. If there was a group of evil pirates second and third level with braces of armor class four and rings of protection plus two and plus three, would your response be to run away from them, try to make friends with them, or go loot them? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it's, and, and the one way to handle that, it's sort of like the drow or drove, <laughs> but, you know, where their magic items are tied to their home world. Right, I was just teasing Dan. The, the drow... Um, you know, they have their, their elven stuff, which is super powerful, but as soon as you leave their homeworld, it starts diminishing. So unless, yeah, unless you're going to do that with the Amazon, that the, you know, the humidity, I'm, I'm making stuff up here, that the humidity of the bracers, as soon as you take it out of the Amazon area, it starts falling apart. Well, yeah, you're absolutely right. You're supposed be like... to be Nordic Amazons. <laughs> Nordic Amazon. Nordic Amazon women, murderous Gang, yeah, that's that sounds like one of those fifties horror movies. That's yeah, I mean, great. you know, it's like okay, I, I get it. He liked naked blondes, right? But yeah. that's not D and D. You just don't know what they were doing. No, they were very clever. What they were doing is they sent that in, so that way, by comparison, the other stuff would get passed through. That's right. <laughs> yeah, that's 
because <laughs> some of that judges guilt stuff. I mean, it's it's kind of like I don't know. It's like the monsters that didn't make the fiend folio, but that's a different conversation. Um, <laughs> and so, then I also did a mini game saga. Right. Tell us about that. That summer. That was. Yeah. That that's a lot of work. Decided to do. So. I mean, I was just gonna say. I mean, because you're only there for. I mean, it makes it sound like you were there for two years. I mean, you write. The expert set, and my understanding is you basically wrote it right, and then it was Zeb Cook edited. It. You sat down and typed. You make, yeah, I mean, it, it makes the sense. Thing easy. is Zeb Cook's editing. You realize he did that without a computer, mm. and he did it to make pages match up, so you could make a loose leaf collection. I mean, and he did it on a really short deadline. Yeah, okay. I would have told you it was impossible for Zeb Cook to have done it. The Why? Gary had a lot of faith in you because you're there for a summer because you're going back to law school. I mean, you're yes. not going to – so you're there for a summer. You're on a deadline. It's the expert set. I mean, this is big money at the time, right? I mean, I don't know how well it was selling at first, but I mean the basic set became the bestseller, I believe, right? It was doing yeah, – And the expert it, set turned out to really sell well. So – why? That's a lot of trust. I mean, I know there's not really a question here, but that's a lot of trust. I mean, you know, I'm putting it into this law student for a summer to type it up. Then we'll hand it over to Zeb and we're under a tight deadline. I don't know. Maybe is that the way kind of things rolled at TSR? Well, just, I, there were other projects other people were busy with, and I had like, okay, do this. Yeah. And uh, so I did it. And then they decided to do some mini games, and I wrote up a bunch of proposals, and they picked Saga as the one they wanted, and I knocked that out. And I learned something really interesting in that process. I, one of my proposals has the same name as a game that came out later. But if you read the game, you can tell that whoever wrote that game never saw my proposal mm. because conceptually it's in the same realm, but it's so different. It was obvious to me, at least as a designer, that whoever wrote that game had nothing in common. And the fact is that names and tropes and other things, there's a lot of, and not all duplication is people ripping each other off. Yeah. A lot of it's convergent, and that will just happen. Now, the odds of someone else coming up with Ixachitl or Sogwin, fairly low. So you didn't put them in the expert series, even though it was outdoor adventure. Why did they not make the cut? Okay. In the expert book, we were limited to things. We were limited to a, a, a certain band of, of IT, IP. Um. The other thing they did is they, uh, oh, and I had originally had also bigger sea serpents, and they, they, they cut them down for the expert set in editing because they wanted to save that for later in the next book. That was kind of forecasting what you know, bigger monsters would look like. Oh, the lesser. I, you know what? I just, I just noticed that. It's a lesser sea serpent. Interesting. Okay, cool. I didn't realize no, that. I had greater sea serpents, and those got cut. Yeah. But the, and uh, 
it's like the spells were limited to the spells in a certain book. And then I got to add one spell, the clerical, the striking spell, in order to have thought the spell chart. There'd be enough spells. The number count. Oh, okay. But you can see there's a bunch of stuff, a bunch of spells that don't show up there. And that's because we were only supposed to use a certain, you know, certain sort. And that's why, you know, to get my clerical spells so that I could fill all the numbers in the chart, I made one up. Rather than just, you know, cribbing one from a later supplement. What were your marching orders uh, for writing it, and who gave you those orders? Just write this? <laughs> I, mean, it's, I realize looking back, it was really, it's like, you know, you're not busy. Do this, okay. Uh, everybody had projects and stuff they were working on, and okay, so, and then I asked, and, here, and, you know, here's a bucket of stuff. And it's like, do I have to use that? Because some of it was pretty horrid. It's like, oh, no, you don't have to use that. It's just in case you want to. It's like, thank you. So I put the bucket of stuff away and just started typing. Hmm. You can, know? Can you, can you tell us a little bit about some of your interaction? We'd love to hear Gary's stories and what he was okay. like. So, Gary was very personable and worked very hard. Uh, one of his difficulties was he smoked. And his family belonged to a church. They would disfellowship you if you smoked. Uh, and a lot of people in the church didn't like D&D. And that caused him a lot of stress. Um, he was off very hopeful. He enjoyed people, you know, discussing things with him. And he was quite open to being disagreed with as long as you weren't obnoxious about it. Uh, now, some people would irritate him, like Cal the Caltech Warlock guys. They basically rewrote his, his rules and then resold them and said, we're doing it right. And the other stuff's crap. Just what you want. Uh, someone... Uh, doing a derivative work, which is basically stealing from you and calling you crap. Uh, but for, and for, and he, uh, he thought people would miss the boat on people that were powerful clerics were. If you look at the, the experience charts for clerics, you know, at 100,000 experience points, a cleric is, is on fire. Uh, he liked fighters, and you'll notice that fighters are the only ones that get, they get to use the magic swords. And the magic swords are the ones that get to have be intelligent, have powers. Uh, he and a number of the guys were much more into traps and tactical stuff. I tend to, you know, have an occasional trap, and it's often environmental. You know, this door will fall off its hinges, or this stairwell is. He's covered with, you know, the roof's falling in and it's covered with uh, dust and crap. You're not careful, you'll slide down it. Um, he had a very tactical wargaming approach, which was part of his immersion for him. And if you're in a real fantasy world, 
this is what you do. You'd, you'd be immersed. You'd be tactical. Uh, what else? Well, um, you you had some. You play tested too games. I right that summer. Yeah. Do you remember any of the modules that you play tested? Uh, Part of it is the giant. Somebody's place at night. They provide snacks, and you played the game, which was kind of fun. We also played uh, Monsters, Monsters, and I got stuck with the familiars, the character, which meant I basically had a crow that couldn't do much, flap around, and watch the other other characters, you know, do something. I spent most of the summer at Lauren Schick's house, and then the French artist showed up. Um, I stayed with one of the other guys. Um, what else? Gary liked bar food, but you know, so did I. Um, nice. They held stuff at the Playboy Club, but the Playboy Club in Lake Geneva was more of a country club rather than a place full of bunnies. If that makes any sense, just happened to be owned yeah. by. And they had a big event for the 4th of July every year. And it's the first time I saw fireflies in any large number. Leaving, it was just coated with fireflies. It was just amazing. Hmm. Um, oh, are you, speaking of Lawrence Chicks, were you there when, was Errol Otis that summer? I don't know when Errol Otis would have done the cover for Deities and Demigods. It gets, you know, I think this gets released at Gen Con in the fall of 1980. And I've heard a story about um, him working on it, maybe at Lawrence Schick's house. I mean, do you remember, was he working on that when you were there? He was, yeah, all sorts of artwork. And Lawrence was editing at nights, and I did a little bit of editing. Uh, you know, I don't think I'd put Coyote as a lawful character, for example. Tricks from the gods are generally not lawful. Oh yeah, that's I hadn't thought of that. Where's the coyote? That's which uh, uh, Native American. Native American. Okay, yeah, that's I think it is. And so I edited a few of the the, the the gods, some of the entries. And Lawrence did a bunch of editing. Lawrence did a lot of editing of other people's work, and I'm talking heavy editing. And Gary didn't mind at all. Editing. He felt heavy editing, rewriting was more than acceptable and was appropriate. And uh, with some stuff I was I was doing, he told me, "Yeah, don't worry about that. Someone else can rewrite with the ideas from you." Um, some of the planes reality stuff. Uh, it's that summer. I didn't actually see that much of him. He was really kind of busy. Okay. Uh, I did get to meet his office. Uh, his daughter was his receptionist. Everybody was scared of her. She was really nice and really pleasant. And she was dressing out of magazines, which meant like see-through braless blouses. And so, you know, you, you were just scared to look at her. 
And so everybody was, except for one guy who got fired, bless his heart. Uh, he was also propositioning other people's wives and wanting to run a campaign in Bravo and couldn't understand why nobody else was interested in it. Yeah. And then he got caught. It, he made a pass at Gary's daughter and he got caught stealing money. He got suspended. And he came in while he was off to take money out of the till because after all, he needed to steal money for lunch. Wow. We should and, have that guy on the show. <laughs> yeah, that code of conduct's pretty good. You can flirt with the owner's, uh, founder's See, daughter, steal, and you only get suspended. Well, you got fired. Who would have known? Again. A warning. Right. You get a, war a written warning. <laughs> you get a, you get a... It was like, I it was like the, 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 the guys whose wives he made passes at were pretty upset with him. And then it all, it all blew up when the other stuff happened. And Gary found out how bad it was. And then they suspended him when they were trying to figure out what to do. They weren't really, they weren't into firing people. See, Bill Willing, we had Bill Willingham on the show, and I don't know if he was there when you were there, but he said this, he said a woman came in to drop off the mail, and he thought she was cute, but he was too scared to, he didn't ask her out. And then years later, he ran into her, and she said, oh yeah, I thought you were cute, you should ask me out. See, he, but I guess he was smart. He didn't want to get fired. He didn't want to get fired, right? I want to think that was Gary's daughter. Well, you know, when you have someone really that obnoxious, nobody wanted to be a creeper. Right. Everybody was, it exactly. was, everybody was trying to be really well behaved. There are, there were some gaming industry groups that weren't that way, but TSR was a bunch of people trying to be very adult. Um, now, later, I don't, I don't know if you heard about the time when they fired a bunch of people. They finally decided to fire some people. And what they did is they asked everybody to name two projects they'd worked on in the last year. And all you had to do is have touched it somehow. And everyone who couldn't name at least one TSR product got fired. And they fired 70 people. We basically hung out on the payroll and no one knows what they did because they couldn't even name a product. Wow. Oh, and the judges guild stuff convinced TSR there was a market for modules. And then a guy sent in one, which I think eventually became the lost city of um, Tokyo counters. I forget how it's pronounced now. To show us, to show us, yeah. But what happened is the guy had, he had a college project. He was, that was his project. He did the art for something. He, he sent it to us just to look at it. Like, wow, this is neat. We have to have we you know we have to follow up on this. And then they started doing their own modules, and uh, it was successful. Something that came up later, and I and I think is very important is having a core play experience. So when you ship a game, you need to also ship. An initial scenario or two, you know, initial campaign, so people can share that experience. Uh, Chelsea used to ship with Apple Lane, and everybody who played RuneQuest had played through Apple Lane, and they all shared that. So they had that that that, that in common. Uh, with D and D, a lot of people had the against the giants, keep on the borderlands experience in common. And so they'd all been through that. So they had common ground for their characters and, and their approach. Um, 
And something that fifth edition has done very, very well is the uh, coordinated play, where there are these nationwide campaigns that once a week, everybody has the same adventure. And so you have this huge body of, of stuff in common with all these other players. And if you move or you and your group end up on the outs, you join a different group, you can slide right in. And that's an extremely uh, positive thing that they did. Yeah, I, and I totally agree with that. I mean, X1, Isle of Dread, B2, they're iconic. They, it's a, like you said, it's a shared lexicon that everyone has. Um, that 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 played the game. Yes, you could go off because again, people talk about their campaigns, and it's like, tell me about your character. After a while, I don't want to hear about your character. No offense, but you know, how did you deal with the ogre in the first cave, or you know, what happened with the minotaur? Everyone, it's so iconic. Did you realize, or, or let me ask this: When did you realize? To I think for many people, you know, AD and D first edition. Yeah, there's a core group of people who are playing it because they played it back then. Dan and I are an example. But BX is not only popular then, it's so popular now. It's, it's been the father of so many games that are so popular today because of its simplicity, its cohesiveness, you know, a very, you could do whatever with it. When did you realize that you had built something that, you know, is not only a great product, but is timeless, you know, so many years later? Uh, this year? This year? <laughs> really? Yeah. Uh, now, AD&D was intended to give people tournament rules. And, uh, well, the interesting parts of that was the um, spell components. Right. When I did Phoenixes, they were the only thing with spell components. And that was a major limit on their magic was spell components. And then spell components became common. It's like, okay, I have to rework that someday. Uh, and what's really interesting is Sean Summers, who worked, uh, did some stuff for TSR and then worked for Chaosium for a while. He ran a campaign that, where fighters and others had abilities just like spells. And it's very similar to modern 5th edition, which I thought was kind of interesting. But BX, I was really quite surprised, I, you know, to realize that people still liked it. Wait, are we supposed to take spell components seriously in first edition? You mean like... Only the, for... I never did, but... No was, one does. But for conventions, you know, that was. Spell components are probably the, one of the most ignored things. They're, they're, they're up what there. Was, well, what was the? I think they're. I I like them because I I always think it's so entertaining to look at the spell components, mm -hmm. and 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 they always seem so clever. We actually we have a magazine, uh, a little fanzine that we do for first edition, and you know uh, we do things like okay, if you use these, if the Mad Wizard used these spells, what would they create? So I love that's kind of similar to spell components. What what was Gary's thinking? Was Gary's thinking with spell components that it was supposed to make things difficult? At, I mean, like if your spell components were, are, are you talking about like saves, where you know where your item, item saving throws that you could lose the spell components and then you can't cast a spell? You know, I don't know. I do know that World of Warcraft, the big MMO, used to have a bunch of spell components. 
for all sorts of things. And they got rid of all their spell components. Yeah, people don't, people don't, players don't like them very well because I guess they feel like it's a nuisance. You've got to, I mean, it's, I guess it's boring to go out and find them. And, you know, what's interesting about spell components is that there's a lot of money to be made. If you look at the spell components for things like, you know, you, you know, you harvest organs and monsters. And so that's really, if there's money in spell components, it's a trade as opposed spell to having. Are loot. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And I didn't really, I didn't know that until I had a player who they killed a vampire and he started like, you know, taking stuff from the body because I guess like, you know, there's a lot of stuff that vampire dust, I think he took the, well, I guess it was just dust at that point, obviously he took the dust. I think vampire dust is used for something or. or yeah. Or, and not only that, but especially when gold equals experience points, harvesting the parts is sometimes one of the most valuable, uh, you know, is more experience points than killing the monster. Yeah. Yeah. The, the real big uh, thing was, was dragon parts. Everybody, you know, cut dragons up. We think you could kill one. Uh, I still remember the first time I played in a, a BX campaign, um, some guy had, well, actually Holmes edition, but sure enough, the first room had a dragon in it. I was like, what? He said, well, yeah, obviously the dragon's going to set up here because first level adventures are easy to eat. <laughs> Gary said you're supposed to play the monster smart, right? Yeah, and then we got lucky on the rolls and we killed the thing. And then we ended up with so much loot, you know, it was, it was like, okay, I've had it with this campaign. It was quick, yeah. yeah. You're done. Well, James, do we have questions? We've been uh, monopolizing our guest. Do we have any? Well, it sounds like we need to come up with a campaign where you have these dragon whaling ships that go around killing dragons and harvesting them. It's like, uh, you know, some kind of commercialization. Everything's commercialized, you know, like like Saruman, you know, kind of war engines where you're just harvesting monsters and processing them in like a likes chicken factory. That's where you get the undead chicken zombie uh, skeleton things is that they're harvested. Yeah, they're, well, yeah, awesome. you, have, you have these feral aquatic chickens. They're a nuisance. So you kill them, you eat them, and then you turn their skeletons into riding animals for your cobalt. No, oh, exactly. It's like the buffalo. You just use the whole thing. Yeah. The mad wizards. Um, well, we talked about, you know, I mentioned there's a lot American of... Indians have been able to turn buffaloes into skeletons as well to ride and pull their pull their stuff around. That's right. The horse would have never, the, the love well, affair with the horse never would have happened. Well, yes, I always thought about that. I mean, shouldn't we have skeletons and zombies just doing menial labor and they should be servants and things? I mean, why? I mean, other than the fact that I guess it's evil, uh, you know, What's wrong with that? I mean, it's. Well, originally it was kind of neutral, too. It's like any magic user got high enough level ought to be raising a bunch of zombies and burying them under his front yard. So he's got a, an army ready when he gets attacked. Well, people don't like that, though. Didn't get, Gary, he, he told us this is essentially an evil act. And so now it's like I did that at a convention and it raised eyebrows. So I was a lawful good cleric. I was, and I was like, I hadn't played in like 30 years. So it just made sense to me. Yeah, like let's, let's have some of these, we killed these guys. Let's have raise them and, and have them work for us, be our henchmen. And, and it got raised eyebrows because Gary sort of saw that coming, I guess, didn't he? Yeah, he used to be a magic user spell. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's like it's one of those things that's easily abused. Yeah, especially because evil people don't get turn undead. 
Oh, okay. <laughs> Here's an interesting. Since you mention it, Gary did not mention what neutral clerics do. Like, do they turn as evil or good? And we asked. I think we asked Jim Ward, and Jim said, "Well, Gary." didn't really have a con well he didn't say exactly this but essentially sort of like there were no neutral clerics when gary ran games there never were they were always good yeah so bad guys are always evil high priests or whatnot yeah the ehp it took me a long time to figure out what ehp meant like it kept being referred to in this i'm like what's an ehp (laughs) so uh yeah so the the neutral cleric so uh don't get any spells Boo! What 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 do people think about that, James? That's why they're earning clerics. Well, wait, like James is a cleric of who are you? You are a Dionysus. Di- well, yeah, the Catholic neutral. Well, that's yeah. what happened. I think we we always assumed true neutral clerics were true. True, it's yeah. But then deities yeah. and demigods came out, and you had Dionysus was Catholic neutral. So, uh, so that's uh, so my priest was a you know obviously a drunken alcoholic basically who it was a disa- could, disaster it was it was a disaster so, i was the dm but bad <laughs> i'm down with the maniacs i bet yeah 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 exactly so um you know i think i think it just to your point it just kind of evolved as you started with clerics were good or bad yeah the alignment system is awesome but it then when you move beyond uh, first from the three, and then what Holmes had five, and then we went to the nine, the three by three matrix. Yeah, actually, uh, the three by three matrix is older than Holmes. Oh, it is. Okay, so Holmes was a simplification yeah. of that. Then, were you yeah. okay with that, or what's that? Were you okay with what Holmes did hey, with the? I was. You know, people can do what they feel like. You know, it's like it made Holmes Are happy. You, yeah, are you surprised that it gets so much controversy? I mean, still to this day, it's so uh, of, of the things in D anD D that have carried over. You know, even in fifth edition, they've they've really kind of dumbed it down. Uh, but it's still there. It's a vestigial thing. They've yeah. they've kind of completely abandoned it. There there are two different ways to approach alignment, or more than two. But the most common are alignments an underlying force in the universe. The positive material planes are good. The negative material planes are evil. And then you have people that are ordered and people who are uh, anarchist. And, you know, people tend to fit somewhere. And alignment is just an underlying, you know, nodal point. And if, if you're going to worship a god, your alignment probably should kind of fit towards that god because it'll bring you closer and get you more power. In fact, they once designed a campaign where there were no clerics, but everybody was a cleric. And somewhere between 1% and 99% of your experience points went to cleric, and the rest went into your character class. Hmm. Uh, but the other way to do it is where you have, you have alignment languages, and where it's an overwhelming exterior structure. And the structure is kind of harsh sometimes. You know, all orcs are this, all, you know. Whereas I saw orcs more like Vikings, you know. And the biggest uh, model for orcs right now is World of Warcraft, because more people play that before coming to D&D than anything else. And 
orcs are aggressive, but they're also very honorable. Uh, but if you do alignment, you know, and I, I tend to use alignment languages like Latin would be an alignment language in our world. Not that, you know, not that you couldn't learn Latin if you weren't part of the high church and not that, you know, but that it's something that's used by uh, versus oh, a test you can, you can, you know, in some forms of D&D, you can check for alignment just by having people talk. Right. And, you know, you get people, they, you know, they knock on the dungeon door, are you for law, are you for chaos? Like, <laughs> but, I mean, literally, there were people that, you read their write-ups, their campaign, and that's what they were doing. They were, you know, banging on doors in the dungeon and asking the question. It's like, okay. Uh, the dungeons were interesting because they let you generate a campaign without having to generate a campaign. They were... Uh, random dungeons were an amazing tool for that purpose mm -hmm. because you could have content without needing to be able to generate content, so to speak. Uh, and it let people play who otherwise would not have been able to, to play. Right, because to your point, there wasn't so much content, and if you didn't feel comfortable, uh, and we've talked about this before, there's there's a time in the mid-70s, early 70s, where it's more do-it-yourself, that latitude to, and then, you know, particularly, I can speak for myself, I think, Dan, to, we started early 80s, and by then, it was more codified, and this idea was, if it wasn't from TSR, at least in my 12-year-old brain at the time, it wasn't legitimate. I mean, I knew there was Judges Guild and Rolades, and, you know, I had some of that stuff, but Really, we made our own campaign, but it, it didn't feel legitimate. I mean, the DMG has blank spaces for the artifacts so that you can make yours, but it was still under the auspice of you're in a Greyhawk kind of yeah. world, and then they, they expanded it. And so I think there is that division that people of newer, they've said, well, if it's not in the rules, and we see it now in elder, new, newer games where if it's not on my character sheet, I can't do it, whereas back then you didn't have that kind of mindset. So I think I agree with you, Stephen, in that. Yeah. This idea of some folks would not be capable of making their own mods. So having that random thing, I love the random. We love dice rolling. We, that's how we do half the stuff because the story, it's improv. It, it's, it's, you build the story from that. And early on you had, you know, uh, villages of lawful good goblins and, you know, alignment wasn't it was a guideline. It wasn't that strict. And some groups like the drow, okay, bless their hearts. You know, you've got a living demon goddess running your country. You're either going to get with the program or get out. Um, but for the most part, uh, alignment was more the general trend of a group. Yeah, and I think you know what we've what I've gleaned from it is alignment outside of the deities or or primordial force is very hard to manage. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense because then it becomes this thing of subjective between the DM and yeah. and the player. Whereas if you have a you know if you're if you're if you're uh, someone who's following Grumps, Grumps says this is what is right. 
if you don't follow it, then you get kicked out. And now you have a problem because you have a cult of Grumsh not happy with you or whoever your, your deity yeah. is. Uh, and, and so I think when people struggle with alignment, you know, whether the paladin should kill cobalt babies or whatever the, you know, the ethical dilemma is, well, if they're following the deity of vengeance and whatever, who's, you know, kill anyone who's a, a, not part of the faith, be a lot simpler to make that adjudication versus, you know, the deity of mercy and, you know, redemption or whatever. I'm just making nonsense up. Yeah. Uh, uh, and, and that, you know, so some of the conversations with that. So it sounds like you've, you've so after TSR, obviously, and, and dealing with that, when did you stop really doing things with TSR and, you know, eventually gets built, bought by wizards and all that kind of stuff? Oh, uh, after they told me I wasn't going to be employed by them, uh, yeah, I corresponded with Gary. Gary eventually got forced out completely. Uh, he started another group, which turned out to be a bunch of venture capitalists who were trying to leverage his IP in order to get more capital. And they weren't actually going to put any of their own money in. And they struck him along, and then they weren't able to, to capitalize on it. And then he did Legendary Journeys. And uh, he got sued over that. The only person who made any money off it really was an attorney who got almost half a million dollars. And uh, I got asked if I could brief, and I provided a motion for summary judgment brief. And instead, you know, $400,000 later, it still hadn't been filed. Um, because Gary had taken every single design point you could take, he went the other way from from D&D. So instead of ruling uh, attributes randomly, you picked all your points. Uh, Just right down the line. Um, And then, you know, he was working on stuff. Eventually, I hit some personal tragedies and I was out of the game for a while. I buried three kids in five years. Oh my goodness. I'm so sorry. And that kind of uh, was distracting to say the least. Oh. And then um, Gary's health got bad and uh, I finally decided to go out and see him and he died the year before. Hmm. And the Judges Guild was going to do some of my stuff and that's when they kind of folded up and anyway and so and you know I, I contribute a little bit here a little bit there so I've got credits in Fantasy Hero and I've got credits in a bunch of the Glorantha stuff and uh, American Gothic turned into Call of Thulu and uh, you know I'm I've got contacted to be involved. I was going to get rid of a bunch of papers and give them down to Rodog. And he said, you know, you got to contact Paul Stormberg. And so Paul sold them for me. And then I got contacted by the North Texas RPG Con guys, and I've been involved with them since. Uh, I did some stuff with New Big Dragon, and they've uh, they've had some delays. Uh, their principal got a tenured position. His wife left him, you know. Oh, yeah. Life happened. Oh, geez. Yeah, and so and I've been backpacking. I retired a couple years ago and 
started backpacking. My wife and I did a big chunk of the Appalachian Trail. And then our our daughter had her baby earlier than expected and then needed us because her husband got sent, you know, overseas for a bit. Hmm. And then uh, and then what then in twenty twenty, uh we start we're gonna finish it up and the pandemic hit, so we leased our condo out, so we went and stayed in our daughter's basement. Because wow. well, we didn't have a place to go home to because someone else was living there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, she needed help with the kids because she's a quality assurance engineer for a medical company. Mm-hmm. And she was working on ventilators and you know, didn't feel like she could take her job off. Right. And so we watched the kids, and that was actually kind of fun. And then my wife took a contract down in Virginia, and I'm writing a little bit. I'm just a little bit slow, but I'm finally putting together the zombie, you know, the chicken skeletons and lunch with the dragon and mist world. And this is for next. This is for North Texas. Yes, you're going to do that for. So you're going in June. Yes, June, right? All right. Well, that's great. Is it planned for them to do that in person? I've been keeping up. So is that the plan? Some people are. A bunch of us been vaccinated. Right. Yeah. Well, go, go ahead. I was just going to mention that there's a there's a convention in October <laughs> that's coming up that uh, that certain folks run in Orlando, Florida, October 15th through the 17th. That's uh, that's our convention. So if uh, if you feel so inclined, perhaps you would come down and run your chicken zombie dragon uh, adventure as well. Perhaps we would. Uh, it's not too. It's not too. The 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 fires of hell heat is not that bad in uh, October here in, in central Florida. I've got a sister-in-law who lives in Orlando. Yes. Oh. Okay. Oh, well, they, they go. Well, we will send you information. No, you don't have to commit to anything. We would love to have you. It's the convention we are hosting also known as GrogCon. That is our, and, that is me, our convention. Are there other questions from your, your listeners? Well, you've answered a few of them. You know, a lot of love for BX and, you know, a lot of the games that are derivative from that, um, you answered about the aquatic elves and the monsters. You also answered why some of the monsters weren't in uh, the, the, the ex, you know, expert series, why they didn't carry forward from that. I'm kind of scanning here. Uh, Dan, do you have yeah, any follow-up I, questions? Yeah, I do. So uh, OD&D versus AD&D. So you land at TSR in the summer of 1980, the, the Holy Trinity, as we like to call it, have just completed being published, the DMG in 1979. I know, and I've heard you talk about this, about you're not a big, and I don't mean to put words in your mouth, but you're not a big rules guy, that you saw the rules as flexible. You know, a lot yeah. of, you know, uh, so could you talk a little bit about how you viewed AD&D and, and the rulesness of it? Nice. You know, I I transpose rules fairly flexibly in my head. For example, Miss World is natively a D100 series where high rules are good, but I'm writing it up to be compatible with Chiasm's basic role playing where high rule, where low rules are good. And you know, it's I find it fairly easy to transpose stuff around. Um, and the people I played with, like Sandy Peterson, you know, the original rules he did for American Gothic, when he fleshed it out, they were 3D6, very similar to Steve Jackson Games rules. But if you look at Call of Thulu, it's a D100 system, 
and you wouldn't recognize, uh, you know, because he just completely swapped the system out. And it was, you know, and so rule systems are like, okay, you know, the rules. So were there were there particular rules in AD&D that you ignore, that you didn't like, and were there particular house rules that you employed that you can think of? Uh, I tended to kind of ignore components. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, weapon, we, uh, differing damage based upon weapon type versus AC. That's another one that's often ignored. Um, it was fun to... I designed some of that. It was fun to design, but Using it is like work. Oh, so you were you were involved in in the in the weapon damage uh, yeah. idea. I mean, you know, you've got things like a bow staff and a Joe staff. Staff, you know, the Joe staff is shorter, but it's got longer reach because you're using you hold it like you would a sword. Whereas the bow staff's held like a quarter staff, and you're not sliding end to end, and so the shorter weapon actually has longer reach. Um, you know, I did a little bit of that stuff. Uh, you know, it was, it was fun, but, and yeah, some, some pole arms are better against certain types of armor. The problem is it's the armor versus the number. So are you attacking plate? Are you attacking chain? You know, a, a draw cut sword slides off chain mail. Oh, but, but is that armor class five or is that... Armor class five consists of someone wearing leather with high dexterity and magic, or someone in plate being hit from behind. Um, well, we just—that's true. We just—we actually had that conversation last episode because somebody we go through the sage advice, and somebody wrote in and asking whether the shield can, because it's just a number, as you say. And so they were—they—they they weren't asking some of the many questions you've just brought up. They were simply asking, "Well, does shield count?" And the answer seemed to be, "Yes, shield does count." And then this launched into a discussion that we had. Well, why should shield count? What has that got to do with the type of armor? And you know, and so yeah, that. Yeah. I think that's why some, but you know what I and do like? And that's why I play B, that's why I, we really right. should play BX. We should just play and not worry about this. Now, um, something fun we, I do at the house once in a while is you take two liter bottles of pop. When they're empty, you fill them with water. And then after you've got a bunch of them in your garage and your wife starts to give edge, you get your daughter to come home and you get out the swords and you cut them all up. Yeah, there you go. And uh, it's interesting to see, you know, you can, you can treat a, a two-liter bottle of water as probably armor class 10, and you're striking it from behind with surprise, and it's prone. And most people are doing good if they get a good cut half the time. It takes them a while. It gives you a good idea why people just don't pick up swords. On the other hand, you get someone a rapier, almost everybody can pierce the thing, and much their surprise... And it's part of the safety training. Often you'll get 16 inches of penetration more than you were expecting. Because hmm. a rapier kind of pulls the thrust. That makes any sense. Or pulls a line. And it just goes. <laughs> just keeps going, huh? Yeah. And uh, everybody, 100% of the time, can get a good thrust in. And it's, it's, it's good practice just to give people an idea of the difference between weapons. 
So, so while he's backpacking, he's uh, potentially could be armed with a rapier. So just, yes. if you do meet him, if you meet Steve and his wife out and you think, hey, let's see if he has a pickup D&D game, be very, do not sneak up on him. Be, give plenty of warning because uh, he may draw a rapier and shiv sh- sh- you 16 inches past what he thought because in his eagerness to protect his family. So just a word of warning. If only they were weight free. Uh, I'll, I'll be I'll be the dude with the sword. Wait, it doesn't. <laughs> he doesn't like. <laughs> I don't want to carry anything that is excess weight. Uh, though I have run. Ah. Did run some D and D games on the trail. Oh See? wait, you brought up another good question. Encumbrance. Did you play by encumbrance rules? Uh, encumbrance belongs with, when you've got a computer doing all the work for you. Uh, exactly. Okay. Well, now, Someone decides to a horse fail through their belt. Yeah, I agree. Now, who in the world, who are you playing with? Is this pickup games on the trail? Are you like, you come to a rest stop or whatever, and you're like, hey, guys. He's at a bar. He's at the bar. He's eating bar food, and there's pulls out the. No, it was in a shelter. Really? Appalachian Trail is a bunch of shelters. Yeah, and somebody found out I played the next thing, you know, I'm running the game for a couple people. That's a, so think about that. You're in the Appalachian Trail. And I later in TR, so I kind of played just Yeah. Yeah. It was You're really at the cool trail. too. Yeah. You're, you're with, and you, you're playing with one of the almost, you know, yeah. original people who crafted, who formed the game that has now millions of people. That's just because you're hiking on the trail. That's, there you go, did, folks. Do they know who you are? Did you tell them? Yeah, that's how I ended up running the game. Because the guy I saw there was like a He's like, yeah, yeah, we gotta play this. They were, he was homes, Anyway, the kid was a great kid. It was um, actually made use of the play tests and some stuff I was working on, so it was all good. He had a dice app on his on his phone, so. Well, very good. Everyone's just really thankful, Steve, Stephen, for coming on today. Uh, we had it was a great conversation. Really appreciate insight. Dan, do you have anything else for him? We want to be respectful of his time. Uh, no, no, I got I got all my questions answered. It was great. So, so Stephen, we have one tradition. Uh, besides, obviously, uh, we'll send you uh, a, an invitation to GrogCon if we can help make that happen. Oh, if you are and, so inclined. Yeah. And let me—I did forget one thing too. It says, of course, uh, our editor in chief, Rob Ritchie would be very unhappy with us if we didn't mention, I think I've alluded to it, that we have a magazine yes. flipping and turning dedicated to 1E, and not the issue coming up, but the one after that is dedicated to underwater adventures. I'm just noting that. That's it. Right. Just, just continue no- on, James. Right. So we will send you a, uh, since you're pretty, you're tech savvy, we'll send you, we have PDF versions of it online that people can download. So, uh, and uh, we'd be happy for you to look it over. And if you want physical copies, because we have, we maybe we can entice you to submit if you would pub, if we put it in our this is our official fanzine that we uh, do, and perhaps we could get an article from Stephen Marsh that would be and, to go with our artwork from Bill and Willingham and Lou Pulsifer that we've had in so uh, that would be awesome. And you know one of our co- our our first edition our first issue a mint copy is selling on eBay right now for ninety nine dollars ninety nine dollars. Now, now, in full disclosure, we're selling it, but <laughs> nevertheless, <laughs> we're trying to get buzz. 
<laughs> Would you like something on cobalt? Yes. Well, yeah, absolutely. I, I, whatever you say, we will say yes. Yes, that's right. Okay. Yeah. Wait, why do you okay. tell us about your interest in cobalt? Because well, I love I love gnomes. Cobalts are traditional uh, traditional character in mythology, and for the most part, they're helpful. They're they're not feral. They're tame. Uh, but they're and they're environmentally constrained. The environment changes them, and. So I thought I'd expand on cobalt a little bit. More. Yeah, there that would be great, kind of uh, based upon their origin. And so, uh, yeah, so well, that's, that's reminiscent of what you said about orcs that you viewed orcs as kind of like Vikings, right? So maybe, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, that, see, James, cobalt are misunderstood. We could have it could be the segue to Roger Moore's ecology of he could do the ecology of uh, cobalt. Right. That would be amazing. We'd yes. love that. So the answer would be yes. That would be yeah, and also, also tossing the chickens. And, the chick and, well, that goes outside. Well, yeah, I mean, we're only taking the kobolds if we the get skeletal, the chickens. Skeletal riding chickens, <laughs> kobolds. Uh, <laughs> so we have one only tradition. Some of, <laughs> some of them, that's right. The elite, the elite kobold guards. Um, the, the, the tradition we have is we uh, ask our, our guests to roll a D10, if you have a D10 available, um, which I've, Eddie, uh, we, we knew. Did we even have to ask that we... That we, 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 we love it. Like our guests always have dice within a ten foot radius. It's that's great. Right. Yeah, I've so, got on my desk here. That's great. So I guess D ten. Yeah. So we. So one being uh, this show wasn't so great to ten being an amazing actually, show. And so tell us. So Alicia uh, Morningstar was misspelled though. Is that right? You're in the dungeon in the log. Yes. Was that yeah. your summer? Was that your summer character from 1980? Um, yeah. Okay. I just keep keep rolling until I get a result I like. Yeah, you just tell us whatever the number is. We, we, well, oh, he, he said, can you roll multiple times? He wants to roll multiple times. Yeah, I want to roll until I get a 10. You could, roll, you could do whatever you'd like. We, no, the dice, no don't, lie. The the dice, dice don't, don't lie. We prefer the first roll, but if you want to tell us when that roll is. <laughs> we, we, we need to be more confident. That's right. I wrote so, so I got a 10, so yes. I like oh, it. a 10. Congratulations. That's awesome. Thank you, because I have to write that down. We, we let people know. So Now all our uh, guests are going to want to roll multiple times. They just yeah, asked, oh, on on Ilyas and Morningstar, they asked us for, for characters. And that was a character I often ran in cons. Oh, okay. Got it. Yeah, and they, oh, misspelled, right, they misspelled it. Yeah. She was a phoenix, so it was like, okay, I've got a fire-based magic system. Um, but I, spells a little bit weaker than normal magic spells, and they require, uh, uh, you know, components. Basically, things would burn. Mm -hmm. And uh, but you know, it was just thing I was doing for fun. And I find that if I'm doing something for fun, I don't mind if it's a little bit weaker than normal. You know, too many people when they're doing their their fun stuff. It's like okay, it's only fun because it's better and more powerful than everything else. Yeah. Well, what I thought was interesting too is you played a you female, and I mean not that that didn't happen, but I think James, when we played, typically we would play male characters, and so I found it refreshing to see well, that you. Were I did too. You know, you like this and the rest. Uh, all my RuneQuest characters. I just had a, 
we just roll these things up randomly. And, you know, this particular character, I rolled it up randomly also to gender roles. So. Why in the world was Dave Cook's character Fred 9802? What kind of a name is that? That's I'm not, a good question. Yeah, and that, that's so odd. We had Zeb on the show, and we didn't even ask him that. We didn't ask him that. Shoot. You know, what's really interesting is I only saw this after everybody had submitted them, obviously. Mm. And after it had been seen print, you know, obviously I would have corrected the spelling. <laughs> <laughs> it was just for fun so I don't know if, if Zeb Cook's character's name is spelled right well it's in numerals <laughs> it may have been letters of some sort it may have been I mean, nine eight zero two. where is the editing okay all right oh geez don't start that question that's just, so, that's just, that's just for fun though yeah well, well, you're, well you've I I'm sure there are people out there, like we were, who look at those books, even the examples, and use them for basing arguments. Well, the example dungeon adventure shows this, you know, uh, this is the truth. And Do you, you know what Lawrence, Lawrence Schick's character's name is? What? Elron Hubbard. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes, I remember that. Not all about <laughs> you jokesters. Oh, jeez. I thought you guys were adults. He's a magic user thief, too. That's right. You are wow, absolutely correct. That Elvin. is a great memory. Chaotic neutral. Elvin Cloak, Potion of Fly. Yep. Elron Hubbard. Okay. <laughs> I right. have my, the character class for my character. I forget now. Okay. You were a magic user fighter. Okay. You're half elf. Yeah. Your alignment was lawful good. Yep. Only 22 hit points. I like that. Back in the day, that's that's the way it was at 22 hit points. Yeah. You know, the half damage on save from fireball was important. Yeah, absolutely. Because yeah. good enough, good enough magic users focusing with scrolls and whatnot on a single target, you can always get them. Oh, can I mention this? Because you brought this up on another or another podcast okay. where you, you said you came up with this idea that if you were going to have a big army, you'd have an army of what, low-level magic users that would sleep spells? Elves. Elves. Oh, that's right. You'd have elves. The point buy for elves was really cheap, and they all got sleep spells. So they, so they, and they also got the split move and fire. So they all cast sleep, which has got a huge range, 240. Then they split move and they fire arrows at whoever's still standing. Brilliant. And for the point buy, you can destroy an orc army of similar points in, in you know the first round. I actually did that. And and what then, system? What system was that you're using for mass combat? Oh, uh, we're kind of mixing chainmail and D and D. Okay, so you kind of made up a mass combat using chainmail. Okay, got it. Cool. Yeah. I mean, it, it, came, it was really easy to do because you calculate all the people that go down from sleep spells, and suddenly there's hardly anybody standing. Right. And then you've got like 10 elves per target, and the uh, evil high priest is, or I guess it was an evil wizard, has just been hit by like 10 fireballs, and bought some scrolls, and you know, bam, and that was that. And, you know, round one, he's, start, he's summoning Cloud Kill. 
and I destroy his whole army and him. Round two, part of my army disappears to cloud kill, the rest evacuates, and that was it. But, but then, you know, I once played Russell, the Russell Finnish War from SBI, and I destroyed Army Group North because I took Stalingrad, put them out of supply, and held it long enough, they all died. The elves or the uh, the rhinos did you do that with? Uh, the... I should have used rhinos, but instead of used fins. <laughs> ah, the fins, very good. That's right. They um, held their own. They held their own. And... The only time I played the game, it's like somebody else had played it a bunch. I said, okay, you can play the fins, I'll play the Russians. I'm like, okay. And next thing you know, I put his whole army out of supply, and that was the end of the game. History could have been changed then. Uh, they wouldn't have had the... The, the 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 forced peace and all the other things. That you don't know what, James. You don't know what you're talking about. Just stop. Oh. Oh, sorry. <laughs> we don't. We're we're bad. So we're, I understand. We're, we're going to close up in six minutes. Is there any other questions anyone's got? No, this is good. Everyone's thanking you very much, and so Thank we you. are we we are done. Thank you so much, Stephen, and right. we'll send you that information. Uh, uh, we'll send you the flipping and turning and uh, that. And hopefully, maybe in June, you'll be you'll be going to North Texas. So if they want to see you there, sign up, uh, go out to North Texas. That'll be you know one of the first conventions post pandemic, or at least on the tail yeah. end of the pandemic. And they'll have part of it online as well. All right. Well, we will look forward to. It. Thank you so much. So for on behalf of Grog Talk, Grog Talk, I'm James, and I'm Dan, and this is Stephen. Thank you again, Stephen. I'm glad to have been here. Thank you so much. All right, and, you, we'll, and, and we'll see you next time on Grog Talk. Take care. This has been a Bushy Puppy production. All rights reserved.